Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Nancy Davis, welcome to Leave Your Mark. I am so honored to have you on. How are you? I'm good. I'm so honored to be on your show. You're such an amazing person. Oh, thank you. No, you're an amazing person. And I am so inspired by everything that you've done throughout your life. And for everyone listening, Nancy Davis is the founder of Race to Erase MS. It is an organization that she founded in 1993. Nancy was a very active and adventurous person, and she was diagnosed with MS at the age of 33, and sadly was told she would be lucky to be able to operate a remote control again. That is really a devastating comment from your physician. I mean, let's just start there, Nancy. What was your reaction to that? I was used to just doing everything. I thought I was 33 and I had my whole world in front of me and I had so many, you know, hopes and dreams and you know, plans for my future. I got MS and I didn't know exactly what that meant. Um, the first doctor I went to basically told me that I should just go home and go to bed. And I said, well, you know, for how long should I go home and go to bed? And he said, uh, forever. I'm like, oh, what do you mean forever? I'm 33. This is not in my job description. Absolutely. I'm a mom of three kids. I was not in a great marriage. And it wasn't an option that I couldn't be well. There was just no two ways about it. That was not in the cards. So I was fortunate that I could go get second opinions. And I did the next day. And then the next week, and I was fortunate that I could fly around the country and really go to every doctor. And in doing so, I learned a lot. Unfortunately, I learned I did have MS. I was hoping you know, somebody would, in fact, tell me that I didn't. Um, I was looking for just that one person to say, you don't have it. That didn't happen. But listening to all the great doctors, they were all doing identical research as each other. And they were all convinced that they were the only one doing the research. So I went to Harvard. I went to Yale, the Cleveland Clinic, USC, UC San Francisco, Johns Hopkins, all the best. And they all told me what they were doing. So I was fascinated to learn where I could make a difference. And it was crazy that every single doctor was doing identical research. So I thought, you know, gosh, as I started digesting what this disease was going to be for me, I thought, you know, how can I get in there and make this, you know, something happen? Because uh, they're telling me there's no known cause, no cure, no drugs on the market, and basically zero hope that there will ever be anything to help people with MS. And so I thought, if I could put these really smart people together, 
to just pool their money in a very smart way to not always spend the same amount of money on the same exact research studies, which are really expensive and take a really long time, we would have something. So long story short, I formed something called the Center Without Walls, <laughs> brought them all together as a team, and we funded them based on the promise that they would never duplicate research. They would constantly communicate every single month, report everything good and bad in research. And the idea of having seven doctors together, we thought we'd find a cure seven times quicker. Today, what's really exciting is three weeks ago, there was FDA approval on the 21st drug for MS, which if you know how the FDA works, it's really an impossible thing to be able to get FDA approval on a drug. No, it's amazing. In fact, maybe you want to work on, I don't know, a COVID vaccine. <laughs> Since you've been so well, successful. I'm working on some other things too right now. I'm working on another uh, another charity also for addiction. I started something called Cure Addiction Now. Yes. I started with my son, Jason, who passed away, unfortunately, about six and a half months ago. So I'm, I'm starting a new charity for addiction, which to me is really, really important. I started it with Jason before. We're going to use the same exact formula that we have for race to race MS with the center without walls where you put together seven or eight of arguably the best doctors in the country to work as a team to never duplicate research to constantly communicate. It sounds like a very simple idea. It's not. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. It just doesn't happen. And I naively in the beginning thought, well, this is going to be a piece of cake. This is going to be easy. Not so. However, over time, um, by doing this, we've funded this team of doctors who has such a camaraderie. Um, they meet all the time. They meet behind my back, which is the best part of it all. Mm -hmm. You're doing a drug study. You know, only a third of really good research gets funded. And out of those studies, only about 10% of those studies ever go on to, you know, having the ability of becoming an FDA approved drug. So it's not in your favor that that's going to really happen. So it's so important that every one of those doctors that's doing this research, it takes so much time and costs so much money that they all have the ability to learn from each other's mistakes on a monthly basis. Um, by the time these studies are published, it could be years down the road that they're telling you what's happening. But they have to sign this sort of agreement that every single month they report everything good and bad. So it really gives you the leg up that you're going to get there a lot quicker. And so our event's called the race to erase MS. So the idea is we are to race, we are to hurry. Um, we started off in Aspen as a ski race, which was really fun. I love. Oh, to I ski. didn't know that. Yeah. See, my purview is I only know it as the fashion show version. I love to ski. Okay, I'm, I'm a ski addict. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, the incidence of MS is 10 times higher in places like Colorado, places like really? Norway, Sweden, anywhere above the 40th parallel worldwide. The incidence of MS is 10 times higher. In New York, also the incidence is way wow. higher, especially more upstate New York. And uh, there's something about the cold. There's something about the cold weather and the frost and whatever happens in that. There's something within that that creates that. I grew up in Colorado. And even within my high school of, of 100 graduating kids, seven other people have MS, which is pretty much considered an epidemic. So there's really a lot to that. In California, it's not as prevalent at all where I live now. So ideally, I feel a little safer raising my children here than I did in Colorado. But, you know, there's a genetic predisposition to getting it. But also, there's something very environmental about it. Wow. And also, if you're a female you have at least a three times higher risk of getting MS than you do if you're a male. Oh, great. Great. So lucky. Yeah. yeah. You usually get it in the prime time of your life when uh, 
you've sort of graduated, you know, maybe from college and you're just starting your career and things are just starting to sort of mesh in your life. And between the ages of 20 and 40, this is when MS sort of reared its ugly head. And uh, it's just at a really unfortunate time when you're that young woman setting out and, you know, the world is just clicking or you're becoming a mom or your career is taking off. And all of a sudden, this thing just happens. Um, That's what happened to me. So I want to go back a little bit because I want to hear about your life before this, sort of like how you grew up and like what you were aiming to do as a career and sort of how you had to pivot when all of this happened. So I worked on a charity for diabetes. My mom has a foundation called the Carousel Ball, the Carousel of Hope. My little sister became a diabetic when she was seven. I started working on that charity. And to me, it was really important because I wanted to find a cure for diabetes. I learned uh, very much how easy it was to do things in a fun way to raise money for charity. Um, I did an auction that was really kind of a fun thing to do. And I was like kind of enamored with how easy we could raise money doing unusual fun things. I mean, at the time, like certain TV shows like Dynasty were the hot thing in Colorado. We were able to get like walk on parts on Dynasty and do different things like that. And uh, we would raise so much money doing that. And so we were sort of involved with the entertainment business at some point. My family owned Fox Studios for a while. And uh, it was it was amazing how well you could do, you know, kind of getting out of the traditional way of doing a charity event. We always had really fun things. I think it was really important. If people are going to keep going to your charity event, you have to entertain people. It has to be fun. They need to learn something about why they're there. Mm-hmm. But it has to be fun. So when I was diagnosed with MS, I had an experience of doing this. Um, I was a young mom. I had so many hopes and dreams of where I was going. And all of a sudden, here I was with this you know, disease that said, I'm going to have to have my children push me around in a wheelchair. I'm not going to be able to get out of bed. I'm not going to be able to do anything. And it didn't sit well. It didn't sit well with me. And I know there's so many people that don't have the option that I did. I was so lucky that I had the option that I could go get second opinions. Lots of people do not have that. I am so fortunate. I mean, beyond everybody else, but that light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, you know, I can make a difference. I can do something here. I have the knowledge. I know how to put this together. And I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants and do this. So I went to Aspen, I had a flyer, I was going to do an event, I threw my flyer into every little store, restaurant, what have you in Aspen, and I was planning this event, and I came home from my little trip to Aspen, and I got a call from the Chrysler and the Pro Ski Tour, and they asked me if I wanted to partner up with them, and I'm like, sure, absolutely, and so they were doing an event at that time that was televised on uh, two networks. It was ESPN and NBC, and uh, we were going to sort of provide all the celebrities to ski in this tournament and put, you know, give it a little sort of Hollywoodish whatever. Mm-hmm. And we did our first event as a pro celebrity ski race. It was a whole weekend, and I thought, okay, we'll have a goal of a million dollars. And everybody said, "Are you crazy? You can't raise a million dollars." I said, "Yeah, well, we can. We can do that. It's not that hard." And so all of a sudden, I'm thrown into like throwing this event together and I, I don't exactly know what I'm doing, but I'm thinking I know what I'm doing. And <laughs> we had great support from the, the Hollywood community. So many people flew in and entertained. Um, I had Michael Bolton sing. I had Kenny G come. 
Um, Tommy Hilfiger, I just met him that year, and I met his partners, Lawrence Stroll and Silas Chow, and they wanted to be part of it, and uh, they were part of my first event, and they, they skied. Um, we had our doctors meeting there, too, and Tommy Hilfiger made ties to give all the doctors, which they still wear to this day, that tie. It's very funny. And we sort of threw this event together, and so we would sell teams, and so the team bought you an event for the whole weekend. It was really fun, actually. We had MC Hammer, and you know, at that time, it was just it was a whole thing. I remember we had a Friday night country western party, and I, I vividly remember everybody dancing with Valentino and MC Hammer and my mother, which just is a crazy <laughs> visual that I still have in my head. It was this crazy event, and it was so much fun. All the celebrities came from LA. We flew everybody in, and I don't know. It just it worked out, and we made a million three. Oh my God. So you beat your goal. So just so everyone knows how much Nancy has raised to date, over $50 million for MS research, which is incredible. If you were going to give advice for someone who is working at a not-for-profit now or someone that wants to put together one, what are sort of the first steps you would advise someone to take? I think you have to have an idea that's original. You have to have a dream. You have to be really passionate about what you're doing. You have to see what is your goal. <laughs> what do you hope to achieve? Don't just have a charity event to have a charity event because you care about something or you're going through a tough time and you want to help somebody. Who are you trying to help? <laughs> what is your end goal? Where are you going with this? Because you can do a lot of events. And if you don't have a goal and you're not trying to, to sell something exactly, you're not going anywhere. It's important to take the right steps. It's important to get a 501c3. You have to apply for that. How long does that take to get? It depends. You know, if you have the ability to put certain pieces together to get the 501, you can apply for one, but it, it takes a while to get all the, the various things. But when you start a charity, um, you need to have an idea. You need to have a passion. You need to like answer a question like, what am I trying to do? <laughs> When I was diagnosed with MS, I was terrified. They told me I'd never walk again, and basically I would never have the ability to be a mother to these three little boys that were the loves of my life. And I was looking for a medication, an answer to help me and to help everybody else that I was meeting at that time. And I had to be okay. That was all there was to it. I had to be okay. And in doing so, I needed to come up with medications. I knew that was the answer. And I think when you're formulating a charity, you have to really ask yourself the question. And if something already exists in that space, you shouldn't copy it. You should find your own space. <laughs> find something that's unique to you and different that will really make a difference. If it's already out there, it doesn't make any sense to copy it. How do you get people to open their wallets? That's complicated sometimes. Um, you have to keep evolving. You can't assume that everybody who's always giving you is going to always give you. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very open and you have to set up different meetings with different people. Different people are diagnosed through the year with MS. Um, a lot of people come to me when they're first diagnosed. And I feel so fortunate and so lucky that I can, in fact, help them get care. From a symptoms perspective, for people who are not so familiar, what do you experience? Well, MS can take on a lot of different things. Um, very often it starts with optic neuritis. Uh, you have a lot of trouble seeing or having double vision, different things like that. And also a lot of times it's a feeling of numbing in your fingers, your, your legs, your arms, and different parts of your body. Um, I had a ski accident. 
And about three weeks later, I woke up in the morning and all of a sudden they had no feeling and that's three fingertips on my right hand. They just wouldn't wake up. Three days later, I lost all the feeling in my right hand. Three days later, I lost the feeling of the three fingertips in my left hand. Three days later, my whole left hand. So all of a sudden, I had no feeling in my hands. Three days later, I lost the feeling in my stomach. <laughs> Three days later, I lost uh, my eyesight just got all blurry. Um, I called the doctor, and I, I had a knee brace on. And so I said to the orthopedic doctor, I said, I think this knee brace is you know, cutting off the feeling in my body. It just doesn't make sense. And he said, oh, no, that has nothing to do with it. But I think you should go um, to a neurologist and have a test for MS. So I, I did finally go as each day I was losing, you know, a, a different feeling in the part of my body. That must have been so scary for you. I mean, I can't even imagine how you felt during that time. I didn't know what to think. Um, I was just losing all these different parts of my body. And I didn't know what to do. So I went to the doctor. I went to a neurologist. And he scheduled an MRI for me. And so the MRI was going to be on a Saturday. And it was going to be seven hours. And I'm like, okay. So I brought some friends with me who were so sweet. And I kind of had the beginning of a flu too. And I was trying to sit really still. Well, having an MRI, they always say, don't cough, don't move. And all you want to do is cough or move. And they say, of course. Worry. And so seven hours turned into probably a little longer. And um, I guess the technician was seeing all these spots in my brain and my spinal column. My friends were with me and he kept going back to them and you know, feeling upset. And everybody had this very strange, concerned look on their face. And that wasn't a very pleasant day because it was going on forever and I didn't feel good. And uh, my friends were looking very sad and concerned. And um, I don't know, it was just something was not good. Something was going on that was crazy. The next day I went to the doctor and it was the most out-of-body experience I think I could have ever had. He started hanging those you know, x-rays all up on the walls, and he had that little laser pointer. And uh, it was kind of like Darth Vader. And he goes, see these spots on your brain? See these spots on your spinal column? See that one? Oh, my God, that's a big one over here. That's a big one there. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm this really healthy, active girl, and I, there's not a chance that I can have something like this. And so he said, well, you're really lucky. You have a disease called multiple sclerosis. Why are you lucky? Well, he said, well, I was lucky because I didn't have a brain tumor. Got it. I guess when you see big lesions like by your brain and your spinal column, you know, so in hindsight, I guess I'm very lucky to have multiple sclerosis versus a brain tumor at that moment. Um, I didn't feel lucky at all because I had had my whole life being this, you know, sort of happy-go-lucky person who's been healthy and who could always ski and by tennis and, you know, do what have you. And all of a sudden they're telling me you're not going to be able to do anything. And you have these three sons who are depending on you. And they were six, eight and 10 years old. And I was not in a good marriage. And uh, I knew that if I wasn't there for them, there was nobody that was going to be there for them. And it just was not an option. How did you channel strength during this time? Like, what was your mindset? You have to almost have a pep talk with yourself every morning when you wake up to be able to like go through that. Well, when I got home that night, I called my parents from my car. I love my parents. I called my now ex-husband from the car and he was terrible about accepting the news. <laughs> I told my parents and they were waiting at my house for me. Um, my ex-husband made it very difficult. He said, see, there's 99% chance you don't have MS. And the doctor just said, there's 99% chance you do. And I was going through this whole like crazy thing, trying to just digest and accept that I had this disease. My parents were very loving and great. The next day I did go to another doctor at UCLA who 
also told me I did have MS. And uh, I just set out to learn about what it was. It was really hard to get information. The internet wasn't, you know, so filled with things and you couldn't really access things then. Um, a lot of my friends were so sweet. They went to check out books in the library and Xerox pages of, of things to read. Oh, wow. It was a, a bit of a different age when I was first diagnosed. And uh, my friends were so sweet and so loyal and so very kind and loving, which really made me feel like so much better. But I was looking at my little kids and thinking, how do I tell them I have this disease that's going to make me not be a full-time mommy? <laughs> And that was the most awful thing I could look at. And I, I just didn't know what to do. Um, the next week I was able to go to NIH and get a second opinion. I got many. And uh, then I just, the journey began. And I had to digest that I had this disease. And what was I going to do? And I went to homeopathic doctors, which ultimately that's what helped me the most. And to this day, I still do homeopathic. Um, a lot of people don't agree with that, which is fine. Everyone has to find that thing that works. When there was nothing that existed, that's what worked for me perfectly. I'm so grateful, and it still works for me. So I, I found a, a way to make it work. Um, I eventually did get divorced, and that was probably one of the best things because if you have any disease, whatever that is, stress will cripple you. Stress will kill you. Yeah, true. That was one of the things I had to finally look at and say, you know, I, who am I kidding here? I've got to deal with this huge problem. And, and I did. And now I am uh, married to uh, Kenny. And we've been married for 26 years. I married the nicest, most amazing husband. And I don't have any angst as far as that is going on. He's been a wonderful, That's wonderful. father to my children. So that was the right situation to get out of at that point. I think that really helped my health. Um, a lot of people, when they are having a terrible illness, they find out there's something in their relationship that is very toxic to their health. And you have to like open your eyes up and you can't just bury that somewhere. You have to look at the whole big picture. And I, I, it was really hard for me to do that. My parents had been married for eternity and nobody had ever been divorced in my family. That was never something I wanted to do, but it was something I needed to look at and I had to do it. I did it. And wow my life completely changed and my health completely changed. It's so interesting because of course we know that stress is bad and people experience stress in so many different ways. And a health stress is one thing and then a marital stress is another and then a work stress is another. And I'm glad you're talking about this because I think people do try to sweep a lot of that under the rug and try to just push past it. But really sometimes you have to really bite the bullet and get rid of that toxicity. You know, you have to. And I was so afraid to do that. I was terrified. It was probably the best blessing to get MS because it made me get out of this relationship that was so toxic. And after I got out of that relationship, my life completely changed. I'm just curious, why were you scared to get out of it? I was used to being in a family where nobody ever had gotten divorced. Um, my parents had this beautiful marriage. Um, I believe my parents didn't really want me to marry the man I married. I wanted it to be the right situation. I'm, I'm always fighting to try to, I guess, make things perfect. And some things you, you know, it's a two-way street. It has yeah. to be two people fighting for the same goal. And when one person fights and the other doesn't, it just doesn't work. And you, you have to open your eyes and sort of accept that that's just how it's going to be. Um, I didn't want to do that to my children. 
But in high, mm -hmm. that was the best thing I could have done to my children because I gave them a stepfather that was a real father to them. Uh, otherwise, they had no father. And that was amazing. Um, yeah. Penny's been an amazing person. Um, he's so good to my kids. And I've gone on to have two more children. So I have Isabella and Mariella now who are almost 16. And uh, I watch my husband and see what a, an amazing relationship, an amazing father. And I realize this is what it's about. You have to put yourself in an environment with somebody who thinks the way you do and you have the most important values together. And uh, if I'd stayed in that marriage, my health would be horrible. You have to like face things. And sometimes people can't get out of things. I understand that. Um, I had to face the most miserable situation, but I, I got out of it and I'm so grateful. You're so inspiring. Talk to us about your book, Lean On Me, 10 Powerful Steps to Moving Beyond Your Diagnosis and Taking Back Your Life. What year did you write that? I don't remember exactly what year I wrote it, but it was right after I gave birth to my daughter. So I would say it was about 16 years ago I wrote my book. And people still come to me, even though the book's been a while. Uh, and when other people are first diagnosed with MS and a lot of other diseases, they seem to find that this is a great anthem to read as it gives you a lot of advice. We all don't plan on getting an illness. Um, however, everybody in their life at some point, you or your loved one will get some sort of an illness. And we all don't take the steps to plan and figure out what it is that we need to do to get through that. And there's such important advice in there, even how to go to a doctor and how to ask the doctor the questions. I think we all get so intimidated and feel like, you know, our doctors are playing God for us and we're so afraid sure. to ask questions. Doctors really appreciate a smart patient. They appreciate you writing questions down and going in there and asking them. We all feel like the doctor didn't ask me this, the doctor didn't ask me that. Well, the doctors, you know, that's not their job. It's your job to go tell them what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, everything. You'll get much better health care when you ask questions. When you have just gone through a terrible diagnosis, you don't hear everything the doctor says. It's so important to have a healthcare advocate with you. It could be your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your whoever it is, but you need to always have somebody. If you're ever in a hospital, it is so important to have somebody with you. There's more mistakes made in hospitals by not having somebody with you. I think that's one of the so biggest mistakes. And also with this COVID thing and not being able to have somebody with you, I think this has presented a huge problem by people not having their loved ones with them in a hospital. I think that's been one of the worst things that can happen and not getting the care and so forth. And so it's important that you know the person who you love and adore also knows your allergies, what medicines you've taken before that don't work for you. And also somebody just to give you a, a shoulder to lean on. It's terrifying when you go through one of these illnesses. It's horrifying. And you can't be that strong that you can just assume that everybody gets through everything automatically. We, we all need each other to lean on. Let me ask you a specific question as it relates to work. So for people that might get diagnosed with something, not necessarily even MS. And obviously there's a lot of doctor's appointments. How do you think they should handle it with their employers? Because a lot of times, I mean, we're all remote now, but a lot of times either someone, you know, has their own doctor's appointments or a sick child where they need to take their kid to the doctor all the time. And sometimes management is just not really amenable to that time out of work. What would you say? I think different people have different situations. I think you need to respect where you work for and try to make your appointments around that so you're not constantly leaving work. I think that's, you know, if you're going to have a good relationship with your, your boss, so to speak, you can most of the time create your appointments, you know, at different times. But a lot of times certain doctors are impossible to get into. Yeah. And 
finally score that great appointment, I think your employer should be respectful enough to understand that you're not doing this all the time, but when you are, this is really important to me, and I hope you'll understand that I need to take this particular time off from work. Um, when you have kids and you're working, that's a whole other thing. You know, I mean, for me, no matter what, my kids always come first. <laughs> if they have some sort of thing happen or an emergency, I mean, to me, that's everything. And I'm always going to be there. Um, not everybody looks at it that way. But I think there's ways of, you know, scheduling appointments and different doctors, uh, are having like Saturday hours lately. I've noticed that. Mm -hmm. I noticed lately there's so much teledoc going on. That's true. A lot of doctors don't even want to see patients lately. I think they're afraid of COVID. They don't want yeah. any viruses coming their way. Um, I went to the pediatrician recently with my daughters for something, and he told me his business was so down. <laughs> he said there's nobody coming in there not, because the kids are not around each other. Nobody's getting the flu. Nobody's getting a virus. The kids aren't getting hurt at school. He said there's like no business. That's so interesting because I feel like that's not the case in a lot of other places. I know. He said he's had one patient with COVID and we treated over the phone. And he said it's, it's just people coming for checkups. But he said there's not been kids getting sick because they're not at school. And they're not giving each other germs. It's, it's very strange. Nancy, you have such a great sort of disposition and energy about you. And we've worked together for a long time when I was at Donna and then later at Alice and Olivia. And you're always such a ray of light. How do you maintain that? Is that your natural default setting? Or do you sort of, do you meditate? Like, what are your tactics for always being this really like positive person? Oh, that's very sweet of you. It's true. I'm not a good person at being depressed. I don't <laughs> like depressed. I hate to be depressed. I think that, you know, I feel so incredibly lucky that I have this disease and um, doctors have told me when they've looked at my x-rays that I shouldn't be walking. And um, I feel like every single day uh, that I wake up, I put my feet down at the uh, side of the bed. I can feel the ground and I can stand up, but I can walk. And I feel like, you know, I, I always do a mental check. And I thank God every single day when I wake up that I can. I'm so grateful that I'm healthy. And I, I pray to God every day and say, thank you for another another healthy day. And given that, I don't really have time to focus on all the negative stuff. There's plenty of it. And I believe that I've made a really big deal in my life about anything that's good. And I say prayers before I go to bed. I say prayers when I wake up. And I really care the most about making a big deal about the things that are good. I just have decided that there was a time in life that I wasn't doing well. And I think I was more negative And it didn't suit me well. And I feel happy being very positive. I've gone through lots of things. I've gone through a, a terrible time recently as I lost my son. It was the most horrifying, awful thing of my life. I know. I'm so sorry. And uh, I, but, but through that, um, he was this really positive, happy person. And I just figured that, you know, to get through that thing and, and even to get through my event, I just had my race to race MS and we honored my son, Jason. And I kind of had him sitting on my shoulder every day also saying, don't be sad. Don't be depressed. I honored him because he had done so much to always help my charity. But he, he was that person, you know, go big or go home. You're going to do it. There's no excuses. You can't sit at home always feeling, you know, sad and sorry for yourself, which most people during, you know, this particular time are not doing 
anything. You can't really do many events, but we found a way, which is almost impossible to have an event, a live event in California. We did it at the Rose Bowl. It was a drive into a race event. You kind of stayed in your car. So brilliant. Pretty much. It was all very COVID safe. And I believe I had the angel on my shoulder, my son, Jason, uh, whispering in my ear saying, you're going to do this. You're going to be successful. You need to keep funding MS research. It's really important. I honored him and his legacy. And I just feel like he was so positive. I have to be so positive. And it's important to just go forward and look at the big picture in life. If you get caught up in all the small stuff every day, and, and there's plenty of it, <laughs> uh, I think you have to deal with things you can't act like it doesn't exist, but you can't make it the most important thing every day. And if you do, you're just, you're going to be always down and out. And I, I see so many people that do that. And I, I, it's just, it's sad. I totally agree with you. But sometimes I think it's probably easier said than done because people sort of can't get out of their own way. So I think, I mean, what you've done is amazing. What you were able to pull together for Jason's memory is amazing. I've seen his videos singing and performing and he was such an incredible performer and entertainer. He was. I loved him more than life. I don't even know what to say. I'm just so incredibly sad that he I died. I know. When this happened to me, I was in Aspen and I, I just had a lot of time trying to you know, come to terms with it and deal with what, how this could happen to someone at 35 years old. And as I am six months into this trying to deal with it, I just, I feel for his legacy. He really, he wanted to find a cure for addiction. He had a problem with addiction. He'd been sober for nine months though, which was great. He died of a double pulmonary embolism, which was completely different. And he's probably one of the earlier victims of COVID because that seems to be something from COVID that you die from that, which is really special. Oh. Did he not know he had COVID or? Well, it was February 16th. It was very early on. He, he was having flu-like symptoms over the weekend and something was going on. He was very sick to his stomach and he was found in, in his bedroom at my house. He wasn't really living here, but he was in, at our house. He was, my husband was here and a double pulmonary embolism is you have two blood clots that go to your own, but it starts in your... Yeah, that definitely sounds like post-COVID. It is, but now there's so many people with COVID, they're finding out that it had to do with these like kind of things like blood clots and so forth. And Yes. But they didn't, yes. they didn't actually test him for COVID at the time. It was so early on that they were talking about COVID and people having COVID, but they weren't really testing anybody. So the coroner didn't do that. The coroner didn't test him at all initially. So we had to do something um, later and found out that it was a double pulmonary embolism, which is just so strange for someone who's 35. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. So yeah, trying to make sense. But he'd struggled with addiction um, for a long time. He'd been sober for nine months. We'd started this charity, and he had so many amazing, great ideas for this charity, and coming up with real cures for addiction, and not just dealing with this you know, 12-step program, which works for about 7% of the people. There's 93% of the people that aren't doing so well. We don't have right. really great ways of treating these people. And we started like a center without walls. We found seven of arguably the best doctors. And most of it's been taking place in New York. And uh, we're going to also do that same type of research and hopefully get a lot of FDA approved um, medications and things that are going to help people. And we're coming up so with a kit. So when people are first want to detox, that they will be affordable for everybody to be able to detox and not have to go to a rehab that's too expensive and accessible to too many people. And coming up with a medication that will stop the cravings after people, you know, they detox and they're even in a rehab. There's no way to stop these cravings. And that's what makes people relapse. So we're working on some strong medications that will help people stop these cravings that make them constantly relapse. And we're 
We're doing some heavy studies on the brain to understand how your brain changes when you become an addict and looking at the before and the after. And we really want to come up with completely different things. And for 20 years, there has been nothing developed, which is insane for a disease that kills one person every 12 minutes. Wow. Ben was so passionate about this because he'd struggled with this and he was in a good place. And he goes, Mom, like, we have to do this. And he was like, you know, beating me up about moving on this. And I said, I'm so tired. I'm so busy because we're doing it. <laughs> You're like, I already have one journey. <laughs> and he goes, you know what? Addicts are great people. They unfortunately have a disease that people don't want to bother understanding. Mm-hmm. And they are people. I love lots of addicts, as we all do. And we want them to be okay. And when you are your loved one, has an addiction, we need to find a much better answer and learn how to help treat them and not just throw them out to pasture and say, oh, go to rehab, go here, go there, and um, let me walk away from you and not give you the love and kindness. That's not what we're going to do. Nancy, is there a website that people can, what is it called? It's cureaddictionnow.org. Okay. They can go to our website and uh, we're going to be doing an event probably in the near future. We have a bunch of things coming up and and even during COVID, COVID isn't the most important disease in the world. The other diseases, they still all exist in their most magnificent form. Um, people that have them during COVID still have them, in fact, in a lot worse way. And they're all at the highest of risk. So they're the people who really can't live life. They can't go out of their houses. They're, they're more sheltered. They're more depressed. With people with MS, a lot of people have committed suicide. It's a really awful time. And yeah. it's really important that we keep funding all the other diseases as well. COVID, it's important. We need to come up with the vaccine. We need to come up with lots of things. But we need to not turn our back on all the other diseases that exist. They're really all just as important, if not more important now. I agree with you. Oh, and you know what? I do want you to mention your jewelry line because I know that's a big part of what you do. So why don't you share about that? Okay, I have a line of jewelry called Peace and Love Jewelry by Nancy Davis. Like, these are mean, anything that's a heart and a peace sign, I have a, a trademark on that. It came out of 9-11. Ideas, no matter where we live, uh, whatever our beliefs are, hopefully we will all aspire to having peace and love in our life. And I designed jewelry. Um, I designed some clothing. I uh, designed some masks lately because masks seem to be the, uh, the important thing to have. I designed some t-shirts, but lots and lots of jewelry. And who doesn't like jewelry, right? Jewelry also is good for you health-wise because it releases your endorphins. It's always good. Does for it? You. Yes, it does. Don't you? When you get a piece of jewelry, you open up a box with jewelry, don't you feel good? So I can buy jewelry instead of going to the gym? I think so. I think <laughs> definitely. At least one out of every five times, instead of going to the gym, you should go to a jewelry store and buy jewelry. It makes you feel good. It releases your endorphins. You always keep it forever. It's special. And when you give people jewelry, they always remember you. It's better than any other gift you can give somebody because it's permanent. It doesn't go out of style. It goes in and out of fashion. And it just feels like a very, it's a gift of love. I love it. Do you have a life mantra? Like, do you have something that you live by? That's a really good question. I I don't know that I really have a life mantra, but I just, I believe in, um, being positive. I believe that every day you've got to wake up and live every day to its fullest. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Yeah. And, um, I really love my family. I really want everybody to be okay. And I feel good the more that I can do. I, I feel like when you leave the earth, hopefully you've done something to help lots of people, people that you don't know and you will never know. 
Well, that's a perfect segue because I always end this with how do you want to leave your mark? And I feel like I could answer it for you because you are already doing so much in your lifetime. But is there something specific that you want to be remembered by as far as how you're going to leave your mark? I just feel it's so important that we all find that thing in life that makes us feel good about ourselves. And I feel that when I get a call from somebody and their life has been changed for the better because we've done some sort of research and there's a medication or somebody's helped them or we can get them the treatment they want, there's no greater feeling of a high than when you've helped somebody else. It's the best thing you can ever experience. Nancy, you are amazing. You're tireless. You are just so inspirational. And I have seen your work over the years and just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. It's so great to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do. You have also been such a trooper with my charity, with your days at Donald Karen and at Alice and Olivia and helping us do fashion shows and wonderful things that really helped us raise so much money for multiple sclerosis. And you don't realize that the great gift that you have given so many people with multiple sclerosis by doing what you did. And oh, I'm thank forever you. thankful of everything you have done. You're really an amazing person. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalickt. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.